our series through the book of 1 Samuel called Jesus is King, and we are just six or seven weeks shy of finishing up this study, but it's been a good one. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about chapter 25. We've got 44 verses to cover, so we're going to uh, quickly walk through uh, a bunch of verses tonight. And the theme is receiving grace, receiving grace. If you remember in chapter 24, we had um, King Saul once again pursuing David, and they got up in the mountains, and David had an opportunity to kill Saul. This was the moment his friend said he was waiting for. The Lord had given Saul into his hands, and Saul deserved death. But David had mercy on him, so he showed us what it was like to have mercy, to withhold uh, something from Saul, even though he deserved something bad to happen to him. And now we're going to see in chapter 25 a whole new cast of characters as uh, Samuel dies and David is back up in the mountains and he's moving around and he comes across this family, this rich family who uh, are a few farmers out in the middle of nowhere. And he blesses them. He shows them what grace is. Uh, but he expects that they are going to respond by wanting to give of themselves back to him in his time of need. And so it's going to show us how God gives us grace. It's going to show us uh, different perspectives as to how we often respond to God's grace, both in a positive way and in a negative way. And for those of you who are uh, new to the faith or you're new to us studying the Word of God here on Wednesday nights, a couple basic uh, definitions of biblical mercy and biblical grace are these, that mercy uh, when we talk about mercy, is God withholding something bad that we deserve. Withholding something bad that we deserve. And grace, then, is always paired. You hear mercy and grace together, and it makes sense because grace is when God gives something good that we don't deserve. He gives something good that we don't deserve. So the pinnacle for us in the faith of mercy is the cross, that you and I deserve death, we deserve to be the ones on the cross because of our sin. God said that's the consequence for sin. I am holy. When you are unholy, we can't be together. You deserve death. You deserve separation. But Jesus saying, I'll take you. I'll take that place. Uh, I'll take your sin. And that is the epitome, the pinnacle of mercy. So then for us in the faith, the pinnacle of grace is three days later, uh, the resurrection. Jesus uh, coming back from the dead in a resurrected form and offering new life to all who would confess him as Lord, all who would believe. And so uh, this is something that we do not deserve. It's one thing for God to dig us out of the hole of the death that we deserve because of our sin. It's a whole other thing to then say, I'm going to give you something amazing, a new life, a new spiritual life, eternity in heaven and a relationship with me. And so for us, uh, mercy and grace are a big deal. This is the good news of Jesus. This is the heartbeat of it all. And tonight, as we talk about receiving grace, I think this is uh, a simple message, but it's sort of a lost art for us in the church. And I think that it is easily realized when you look at how many Christians are experiencing their faith. I think a lot of us are worn. I think, I think a lot of us ha have experienced... Um, enough sermons, we've heard enough sermons to know we need to be givers of grace, but we're not very good at receiving grace, and so we become worn out because we're told over and over and over in sermons that we need to bless others, we need to help 
others. We need to give to others. And what's happening is we're encouraged to generously give something that we're pulling or drawing from uh, that spiritually we're impoverished. And that means you're going to be worn. You're going to be burnt out really quick. If you're pulling from a bank account uh, spiritually, that is low. And so um, hopefully you find some refreshment. There's a big difference between knowing about grace. Most of us, if, if you've been part of a Bible study before, you know about grace and actually tangibly experiencing it. I love the fall because um, I didn't when I mowed lawns uh, for a living, but I love the fall now because uh, a meteorologist, um, the weatherman, folks, could, they could scientifically tell you there is moisture in the air and that the warmer the air, the more moisture is held in the air. Uh, but then when it gets cool outside, so right now it's nighttime, then that moisture, uh, then it goes and you see dew on the grass because it can't hold as much. So scientifically, you can understand that there is moisture in the air, there's moisture in the grass, but when you wake up in the morning and you see the dew on the grass, and you know scientifically what happened, but then you actually experience it, you see tangibly a refreshment. You're like, yeah, that's, that's a big difference between just knowing what happened and experiencing refreshment. So I hope tonight that you are refreshed. We're going to rock and roll through these 44 verses tonight, so... If you got a Bible, chapter 25 is where we will be. In verse 1, this kind of sets the stage for the whole night. It says, now Samuel died. So Samuel being the, the prophet, Samuel being the primary spiritual leader uh, over all of Israel. And he, uh, of course the book named after him, he dies. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. And then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So just a, a little side note that's kind of interesting. It says all the house of Israel. Remember, four or five, six hundred men had gone with David and they're running in the middle of nowhere. Saul then with the rest of Israel are chasing them and, and keeping the homestead, uh, you know, um, up and running. Many scholars believe that David took the chance and came out of his cave and, and they came together as one nation to bury Samuel. So the idea that he risked his life, more than likely David did, to go and bury this spiritual leader. Uh, just, it's interesting. In verse 2, And there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. Now the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now his wife, now excuse me, now the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail. Now the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. I think that sums up every marriage in the world, right? Amen, man. Never mind. Okay. Now he was a Calebite. So remember, Caleb was the faithful spy who spied out the land of Joshua and said, I know they seem like big monsters, but we can take them. Well, this is a descendant of Caleb. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David sent, said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him, Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all you have. So he's saying straight up, like, I'm not here to fight you, but peace be to your whole little kingdom out here in the middle of nowhere. I, have, I hear that you have shearers. 
Now, your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. In other words, they did not lose any sheep, and they did exactly what they were called to do by Nabal. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. All right, first thing we see about grace is we see from David's perspective that God initiates grace. God initiates grace. This is core, this is foundational to the entire faith. This is the foundation of Christianity, that this is something God has given us long before we could ever serve him, seek him, please him, love him, give to him, do anything for him. God saying, I'm God, and I see your brokenness. I'm going to come down. I'm going to love you. While you were still yet sinners, Christ died for us, we see in Romans. And so, Jesus, being the better David, we see David in this story, obviously reflects how God responds and how God gives to us. God initiates grace. You're introduced uh, in these first eight verses to the, the two other main characters in this story. This guy named Nabal, uh, whose Hebrew name literally means fool or folly. And then his wife, Abigail, and her name means the father's joy. And it's not coincidental in that Nabal, his response, which we'll see in a few verses, his response is one of um, foolishness to God's grace. And he rejects it, while Abigail falls on her face and says, I've got to give my life, I've got to give everything we have. We, we have got to bow down to David. And of course, her name means the father's joy. This is God's heart for you. This is how he wants you to respond to his grace. You see, Scripture tells us, you and I, we give grace because God gave us grace. You and I, we love. Why? First John 4, 9. Because he first loved us. This is it. Every other religion is going to tell you, you've got to earn it. You've got to produce something that's not within you already. You've got to be good because being good is just good. You've got to try harder because that's just what we do. God's saying, you got nothing in and of your sinful self that can bring me anything. Like, you, you, don't, you can't help yourself. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my love, my mercy, my grace on the cross. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, the same spirit that was in my son. I'm going to give this to you and enable you to have everything you need. Ephesians 1, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Everything you need to pour out grace on others. But you don't have to, you don't have to go back and say, how am I going to do this on my own? I can't do this on my own. You're going to have me with you. I'm going to be the, the one giving you the ability. This is beautiful to know that in the Christian faith, everything God will ever ask of you, he will also empower you to do. Everything God will ever ask of your life his spirit is going to enable and equip you to do it. You're not alone. God's never going to say, hey, you by yourself, give me something good. And God says, my spirit is going to help you do whatever I ask you, whatever I ask you to do. You see, when it comes to blessing others, to giving grace to others, I think a lot of times, if you're human, um, your first thought when someone asks you for help or even if you see the need, your first thought is, well, what have they done for me? 
people? What, are they, what have they done for me? Because it feels like we, if I'm going to do something for you, we should at least, this should be even, right? But if you're a Christian, then you have this foundation that God initiated grace, that you don't ever have to ask the question, what has the other person done for me? Because the question was answered on the cross when Jesus gave his life for you. It'll always be your foundation. You never have to guess, should I bless someone? Should I go 110% when I don't necessarily feel like, should I go all out? You got the answer to the question on the cross when Jesus gave his life for us. This is beautiful as well because God will never force you to love him, right? We're not robots. God, God doesn't force us, but his love is shining throughout all the world. He's saying, you know what? My plan is not to force humanity to be a bunch of robots. My plan is to send my son to do something that's going to blow their minds, to just absolutely just tear to their heartstrings and just rip them apart and say, I love you this much. And so this is why scripture uses language like draws you in. It says no one can come to the father except through the son, but nobody comes to the son unless the father what? Draws them in. Are you being drawn in by God? This is what his grace does. Of course, if you were uh, reformed in your theology, if you were what we call a Calvinist, you would believe maybe in a doctrine called irresistible grace. The idea that you cannot, when God starts to draw, you cannot resist it. You cannot say, eh, no thanks. God's grace, it compels you to give back. Because although David, he simply blessed Nabal for, for no particular reason other than to be a blessing, he then comes back and when he sees in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 7, that it's a feast day and we're up in the mountains, we don't have any food, we had taken care of your shepherds and made sure that everything was fine, even though we had no strings to you, there was no strings attached, we, we, we did it just to love you and to bless you. But now, we ain't got no food and we want to honor the Lord. You see, you can't earn grace, but there's an expectation with grace. That when grace comes into your life, when you hear what Jesus has done on the cross, that you will respond by giving of yourself. You say grace is free. Well, it's not free in the sense that it cost him everything. Jesus. And he asks you to give him everything in return. But it's beautiful. I know Silas, my son, when it comes to snacks, and him and I love snacks. We love, we love them a lot. I have told him over and over and over, buddy, share your cookies. Share your snacks. I want some cookies. I want some snacks. Your friends who hang out with you, they want to be uh, included in snack time. And I say, share, share, share. Nine times out of ten, you know what his response always is when I tell him, share your cookies, share your snacks. He clams up and says, no, no, I don't want to, it's mine. Immediately, when the father forces the son's hand, he just says, nope, it ain't going to happen. But yesterday, learning a little bit about God's grace, I said, I'm going to try something different. And so I went and I got a cookie. I was going to get two, just so you know how this, wa this wasn't even going to be a story. But Tara said, no, we're not eating cookies every day. You need to stop. But I already had one in my hand. It was too late. So I had to go on. And, and so I just had one cookie. And I, I sat down with Silas and I showed him the cookie. And I said, okay, buddy, this is my cookie. And I could eat it, um, but I'm going to give you some. And, I, and I, I, I broke the cookie in half, but it broke like three quarters and then just one quarter. 
And he immediately, like, he reached out for the three quarters because he wants it so bad, but it's my cookies, right? And all the M&Ms were on his side. There's no M&Ms on the quarter side. It's obvious which side is better. And then I said, Silas, I'm going to give you the big half, the three quarters here. And he took it, and he smiled, and he started nibbling like a little mouse with his cheese, and he's just loving on this cookie. About two minutes later, he snuggles up on me. I didn't ask him to share He snuggles up on me after I ate my quarter piece of cookie. And he says, Daddy, do you want to nibble my cookie? And I said, yeah. And I took a little nibble and gave it back. I said, thank you, buddy. He says, Daddy, he was licking on his M&Ms. He said, do you want to lick the (laughs) M&Ms? I did not lick the (laughs) M&Ms. But I thought to myself, what makes a little boy say, no, I'm not going to share. And then just a short time later, same cookie, same. There you go. It's when you realize that the father initiated grace. That he, he came and said, I'm not going to force you to love me. I'm going to draw you in. The problem with you and I, though, is that we focus more in the church often on verse 8 than we do verse 7. You see, verse 7 is David saying, Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing. So I I blessed you. This is God saying, I have come and blessed you. But in the church, we often look at verse 8 where it says, Now, therefore, here's the expectations. I hope that we have found favor in your eyes. It's a feast day. Please give me some stuff. And so, again, you hear those sermons over and over and over. You're a Christian. You should do the right thing. You should bless people over and over and over. And the focus on grace becomes more about us making sure that we're the givers of grace and we lose our basic, fundamental understanding of the faith, which is we've got to receive grace. Let me ask you, are you good at receiving gifts? Like at Christmas time, when people get you gifts, how does it make you feel inside? makes me feel weird. makes me feel awkward. If someone even just came into this room and, and, and took out some money, said just a bunch of $5 bills, and went person to person and looked you in the eye and said, you don't know this person, they just say, here, I want to give you $5. Would you be able to stomach that and to take that? Like what would your response be? I don't, I don't need your money. I'm, I'm fine. I'm okay. Right? All kinds of pride would come in. Like you could, it would be hard, more than likely, for most of us to just receive a simple gift. We would think, I don't want to have to pay them back. Oh, I don't need this. Oh, I don't want to make it sound like I don't have a job I can provide for myself. How about compliments? What do you do when someone compliments you? Sometimes we're like, oh, no, no, we have all these false sense of humility. No, 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 it, it, I, it, yeah, I'm, I'm not as good. You should see me in the morning. <laughs> I'm horrible. You're like, I mean, we just come up with all these excuses as to why we aren't as good as we We don't know how to receive good things. And so oftentimes when you're worn out in the church, you think, well, I don't need to hear this sermon about receiving grace. I'm a believer. I'm saved. I've received God's grace already. Well, God's grace is not just a one-time thing that he wants you to receive. He wants you to experience it tangibly every day. And if you do not, you will be worn out because you can't give of something you're not receiving of. Giving issues are receiving issues. You've got to be filled up. You've got to be filled up. It's a good practice each day to wake up and to thank God, to even tell him, you know what, 
God, in the moment that I first believed, God, I'm going to put myself in that place right now. In the moment I first believed, when I knew I hadn't served you yet, I hadn't given you a dime of my money yet, I hadn't done anything for you yet, and yet you still looked on me with favor. You gave me grace before I could ever do anything for you, before I could ever please you. Just enjoy that. Bask in that. Because that's how he still feels about you. Verse 9. And when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited, and Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. We're going to go back to verse 12 later on. You're going to want to remember that. David's men just told him and then turned away. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So they're going to war now. Those are fighting words. Second thing we see about grace is we see Nabal's perspective. That when you receive indirect grace, it often leads to apathy. It often leads to apathy. Here's what I mean. Indirect. Um, like if, if someone walked up to me and said, hey, you know what? Uh, I know I'm just meeting you for the first time, but uh, your wife, Tara, uh, 10 years ago, her tire um, was flat. She was on the side of the road, and I, I helped her uh, fix her tire, put on a spare tire. I just wanted to tell you that. I would say, awesome. That's good. Any friend of my wife is a friend of, of mine. Wonderful. But like I wouldn't be blown away. Because even though it impacted me, it didn't really like impact me, me. It just impacted my family. And so Nabal, he's a rich dude, and he's hearing about this grace coming from David, and he's thinking, great. So my shepherds and my servants who were out in the middle of nowhere with all my sheep doing a job that I fully expect them to do, you helped them. Wonderful. And I get it. Deep down, it somehow blesses me that my sheep were protected. But... Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Oh, there's a whole bunch of people who break away from their masters nowadays. Not a big deal. You see, he had God's grace on him, but it was indirectly blessing him, and that's just not as powerful as being directly confronted with the grace of God. This is, this is crucial because I think this is a lot of us. What, what Nabal's essentially saying is, I've got tangibly, I got water and I got food, I got meat. Why should I give something I think is worth much to someone who I don't think is worth much? And that's the, isn't that the question for all non-believers? Why should I give my life to a God that I haven't really seen his power I haven't had an experience with God. Why would I give my life to a God that, I mean, I see him all the time in other people's lives. 
I think a lot of us, we are riding the coattails of God's grace in other people's lives. It's wonderful when you're sitting on a Sunday morning and you hear some missionary talking about, well, God moved in Africa and it's amazing and you should see it. And God's power one night, we were all praying and, and then fire blew up and everything was crazy and we we're speaking in tongues. And you're just like, wow, this is cool. God's moving. Awesome. Wonderful. But then how long does that last in your own life? Like you can ride their spiritual high for only so long, right? And I think a lot of us, we're used to coming to church because it's the right thing. We're used to doing Christian things because we should. And yet, when was the last time you had a direct encounter with God? You hear about your family having, enca- having encounters with God. You hear about your friends. You hear about the preacher talking about him. But ultimately, if it's not happening to you, you're probably not going to see your life changed. And now, I'm not saying that this is a rule. Because it's good to hear and be encouraged by what God's doing in one another's life, right? But if that's all you ever get when it comes to God's grace, is what he's doing in someone else's life, it just ain't going to last. It ain't going to empower you to really give your life to him. You got to have it directly. You're always going to be ho-hum in your faith if you don't experience that grace directly. So you got a couple options. Number one, you can do what I say just about every week, and that is to preach the gospel to yourself, to remind yourself of God's grace on your life, on what Jesus has done on the cross, and how it impacts everything you do every day, and just immerse yourself in God's truth, to read, to open up those pages, and to read over and over and over and over until God's Spirit digs it so deep into your soul that you can't help but to be transformed. God wants you to have His direct grace on your life. He wants you to have a testimony. Number two, if you're a believer and you just find yourself, hey, I I know what God says and I do receive it, but like I, I I don't tangibly experience his grace on a regular basis. I'll tell you what, God didn't just save you by his grace and then leave you on the pew. God's intention in saving you by grace was so that you could be filled um, not only with his spirit, but part of a bigger plan and mission that will demand you, this is key, demand you to experience his tangible grace to even be able to partake in this mission. Here's what I mean. So you guys, you know me, right? I've dealt with anxiety struggles, social anxieties. I, I, I despise being in awkward social settings. You know, I, I, I just, I don't like riding in cars with people. I hate flying and being cramped with people. Bus rides, just, it just feels weird. I just, yeah, just, I, I just, I just want to be in the mountains by myself. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's me. And so I grew up then coping with my anxiety by trying to control all of my situations. So the second I got some power, by the time I was in high school, I remember my parents even had a, my mom had a note card, um, a, a sticky note that just said, Ryan won't be coming to school today. And like, if I didn't, didn't want to come to school, I could just give that to one of my siblings going to school and, and then give it to the secretary. And I, I knew, like, I could control my day. If I was anxious, I could just pull back. Well, that's not good in life. You become a control freak. And it's hard to let go. This, uh, this next week, I'll be leaving for Michigan on Friday morning, and I'll be gone for seven days. Now, 
to make a long story short, these little churches up on the Canadian border in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, never been there, don't know them. They found Tara and I in some Southern Baptist magazine of church planning for back when we were in Utah years ago, and they wrote me a letter saying, hey, we would like you to come preach at this missions conference and do a circuit thing where you're going to go uh, like three hours apart from each of these little churches. You're just going to go around and, and you're going to preach like uh, six times in, in five or six days and it'll be great. You'll encourage the churches, blah, 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 blah. Now, immediately I'm thinking to myself, this is my worst nightmare. I'm going to show up. Someone that I don't know is going to control where I go, where I sleep, they're going to know all the details. Like, I don't know the details. My first inclination is I got to get a hold of this situation. So I want to call the guy. Be like, okay, I'll do this, but tell me every detail. Tell me every detail so I feel comfortable with it. And, and he said, okay, you know, they, they just sent me a, a plane ticket. And, like, I, I don't know much more than that. I, I know I'm hoping someone will pick me up at the airport. Um, that he, he mentioned in one email that there would be a drop-off somewhere and then someone else will pick me up and drive me hours around to other random little towns like this is <laughs> this means nothing to you i know i know i know this is a nightmare for a control freak and god has had to tell me over and over ryan i am pushing you i am getting you uncomfortable you need to grow you can't control things don't email any more about details don't call them up and ask about details just suck it up Get on the plane and just see what happens. And it is killing me. Why do I tell you this? Because I think no matter what happens, knowing it is God's plan for me to make disciples as it is yours, I am going to need to tangibly experience God's direct grace on my life. I am going to call out to him each day, God, I can't do this. I'm uncomfortable. I feel sick to my stomach. I'm anxious. All my fears and insecurities that I try to get rid of, like they're going to they're gonna boil up. I need God's grace. You've got to be a part of God's mission. You're going to find yourself over and over. If you take the disciple-making command serious, you're going to need him to show up tangibly or you will not be able to serve. But that's not a bad thing. This is a refreshing thing. This is a beautiful thing. Because where else would you rather be than to experience God's tangible grace on your life? I got it. Even as a pastor, I could tell you about grace. But I got to taste it. I got to taste it day in and day out. Verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, so that's the wife of Nabal, Nabal's wife. <laughs> Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he railed at them. I love that. He railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. So he's bragging up David and his men. And they were a wall to us, both by night and by day. And all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined. Verse 17 is key. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. <laughs> Third thing we see. We're going to have to move a little bit quicker. 
the servant's perspective. So we saw David's perspective, God initiates grace. We saw Nabal's perspective, hey, indirect grace is going to lead to apathy. And now you see the servants, the ones who, who got God's direct grace. David blessed them. They were the ones who experienced the power of David and his men. It leads to transformation. It leads to transformation. You see, these servants are serving Nabal, but they were so blown away by what David did in this, they're like, no, nah, <laughs> Nabal just rejected David's men, and this ain't going to happen. They went from being servants of Nabal to now, they, they're saying, hey, listen, we're going to brag on David, and, and we are going to tell you that our master, our old master, is worthless. They're turning away from their old master and they're praising a brand new one. They can't help but to talk about what David has done for them. Does that sound familiar? They can't help but to talk about God's grace when you are directly in the path of God's grace. Biblically, you see that we're all called to share our faith. But what stops us from sharing our faith? Some say, well, I'm just not an evangelist. Yeah, doesn't work. God says you are. Some say, well, I, I, it's just not my personality. Yeah, doesn't work. God created you. He wouldn't have given you a command. He didn't empower you to do. Well, I just fear it. That's legit. God will give you peace. Here's the real reason why those of us who don't share our faith don't share our faith. I believe, and I could be wrong, I'm just going to throw this out there. I believe it's because we haven't experienced something worth talking about. I think at the end of the day, we just flat out have not experienced something worth talking about. What do you guys know about me? You know I love Chick-fil-A, don't you? I've heard people talk about Chick-fil-A. I don't talk about Chick-fil-A because I heard other people talking about Chick-fil-A. I've tasted Polynesian sauce. I've tasted Chick-fil-A sauce. I order a number one lemonade, no ice, and I know what it tastes like, and that's why I talk about it. You know I love K-State football. There's a million college teams to enjoy and root for on Saturdays. But when I was a little boy and we could scrum up the money, I would go and see 50,000 purple-clad fans sitting there roaring about little old Bill Snyder and K-State, my wife would say kitty cats, wild cats, and, and... I looked at it and I thought to myself, I like this. So I talk about K-State sports. There's a thousand country songs that'll tell you about small town living and convince you that it's a great thing. Rural life. But I grew up 18 years in a tiny town. And I like small town USA because I grew up in small town USA. I talk about hiking not because I've seen a million ge National Geographic pictures about beautiful hikes, but because my wife and my son and I have stood in front of God's creation and said, wow, this is amazing. This cannot be photographed and communicated in its full awesomeness. You see, what you talk about is directly related to what you are being impacted by. At the heart of evangelism is not a command, it's a response. It's not to speak for God, to please God. It's to speak about God because you can't help but to speak about what you've experienced. 
evangelism is the natural response to God's grace. And so I can tell if you look in Jesus' ministry and you hear those who were healed directly by Jesus, what do they have in common? They can't talk about it. Matter of fact, sometimes he has to tell them, don't tell people about this quite yet. It's just what happens. When you've been radically saved by the grace of God, you want to talk about it. So let me ask you, what are you talking about? If your friends, if your family, if they were going to sum up what they hear come out of your mouth on a regular basis, what do you talk about? Is it the worries and stresses of this life? Is it the next move you're going to make in your personal life? Or do they hear you talking about the glorious riches of Jesus? Let's, let's get honest, folks. They hear you talking about what's impacting you the most right now in your life. Is it the good news of Jesus? The problem is not the gospel. It's not whether it's good enough to be talked about. It's whether you're going to humbly, patiently submit yourself to seeking the God of the universe and to experience his glorious grace. Because when you experience it, it ain't a matter whether you're going to talk about it, you're going to talk about it. The question is, are you willing to submit in humility and seek him? And I'm not just talking about those of you who might not follow Jesus. I'm talking about Christians. If you want to be renewed, lit on fire right now, are you willing to seek? Verse 18. We'll move quick through these last 20 plus verses. Then Abigail, remember the wife of Nabal, he said she is the father's joy. That's what her name means. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins. This is a lot of food, by the way. And 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. They got a rocky marriage, in case you're wondering. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely, in vain I have guarded all this fellow had in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. So David's thinking, I'm going to crush him. We're going to kill Nabal and everybody with him. And Abigail's about to crash right in to David. God, do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave, this is David talking, I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Oh boy, isn't that the prayer of a sinner? Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Remember, it's fool. It means folly. 
Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, meaning you're obviously hopefully not going to kill everyone now, and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to you, given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. So she's talking about my Lord David, and then the Lord God. And evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. She's preaching now. Go, Abigail. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. All right, that's a lot of verses. Now we see Abigail's perspective. We could preach an entire sermon on just this alone. The context of grace. The context of grace. So here, here's what's going on. Abigail comes into contact with David, and she gives everything. She gives her life, all their food, everything. She bows down and says, you are my master. God has put you over us. He is amazing, and you are going to be a great leader. And remember us. Please don't kill us. Remember us, because we know you are going to be prince. You're going to be king over all of this. We know God has blessed you. His hand is on you. This is the proper response to grace. Bowing down to Jesus, calling him Lord, and knowing that God's favor is on him and anyone who bows down to him. This is the context of grace. You see, isn't it interesting that Abigail hears about David's grace just as indirectly as Nabal, right? The shepherds were the only ones who were directly blessed by David in the wilderness. So what's the difference between Nabal, who's like, yeah, whatever, David, and then Abigail, who again just hears about David's goodness, and yet she bows down her whole life, gives everything. Why? What's the difference? Well, the difference is verse 12 compared to verse 17. If you go back to verse 12, that was when the servants came to Nabal, and they told him, hey, we, we uh, have taken care of your sheep and all your shepherds and all that good stuff, and, and we're going to need you to, to bless us and whatnot. And then Nabal said, no thanks. And then what happened? They just walked away. But in verse 17, when the servants tell then Abigail, they include a very important part. They don't just talk about how David blessed the shepherds. They say, and there's judgment. He's going to kill us. It's going to go bad for us. You see, this is the context of grace. This is the context of God's grace for you and I. That there is an alternative. It's not just a matter of, oh, you know what? I heard about Jesus and he died on a cross and it's wonderful. Um, great. Compared to others, 
who say, I heard about Jesus, he died on the cross, it's amazing, I gotta give my life to him. What's the difference? Well, if you, if the context of that is, and some of you, you've been to churches, you know what it's like to go to a church where they talk about God's love, and it's amazing, it's wonderful, but if you don't ever hear about hell, how powerful is God's love to you? Eventually, it ain't gonna do much for you. Because you think, well, I'm doing pretty good, and God's love is just a little bit better than what I was before. Everything's wonderful. But if you realize the alternative is hell, it changes everything. When you realize the context of God's grace is that, hey, it's not just that David helped you in the wilderness. It's that if you don't respond to him, he's going to kill you. All of a sudden, it's the difference between someone who just adds a little bit of David's goodness to their life, the Lord's goodness to their life, and someone who gives their life to the Lord. That's the difference. That's the difference. Impending judgment. Listen, people all the time, maybe even in this room, we complain about living in America, don't we? I mean, you hear me talk about the American dream and how it's not compatible with following Jesus. But people legitimately complain about living in this country on a regular basis, and some of those complaints might be completely legit. But guess what? You want a perspective change? There's alternatives to living in this country. Most of the world knows those alternatives. They're not always great. You complain about your job? Might be legit concerns. There is an alternative to working the job you have. And it's no job at all. You complain about your family? There's an alternative to having the family you have. It might just be no family at all. See, there's always an alternative. And your perspective on how beautiful God's grace is, because we've all been blessed richly, your perspective is only going to be proper when you realize the alternative to God's blessing. This is why we got to preach the whole gospel. The good news of Jesus is only good news if it's in the context of the bad news that you and I are sinners bound for hell. All of a sudden, the cross isn't just a a pretty little love story. It's God's amazing power, and it will blow you away. Listen. If you separate grace From brokenness, you take out all the beauty. If you separate grace from brokenness, you take out all of the beauty. I know that there are probably people in this room, if you're anything like me, that you find yourself feeling broken, sometimes feeling inadequate, saying things to yourself and even to God, I'm not not good enough. I can't do this. I can't live up to the expectations. I, I, I can't do this. I am not good enough. But you need to understand that most religions don't know what to do with a broken man or woman. Because when your goodness is dependent on your own behavior and you say, I'm broken, then you're just broken. But Jesus knows what to do with broken people. This is where grace shines. This is where the power of God excels. And listen, on a daily basis, when you find yourself feeling
feeling worthless, when you find yourself broken, when you find yourself not feeling good enough, not thinking you're good enough for God, it can be one of two things. It can either be the setting for a pit of sorrow and self-pity, and you can sit there and feel miserable nonstop, or it is a place of understanding and a reminder that you need God's grace to flood over you all the time. It's become uh, trendy over the last several years to take distressed pieces of furniture and, and put them in our houses. Hasn't? You probably, you probably noticed. Um, old doors that are painted, uh, you know, they were beautiful 30, 40 years ago, but now they're just got all kinds of cracks and lots of the paints chipped off. Or old windows, maybe you've seen like old wooden windows that uh, people put beautiful pictures in and, and they're distressed and it's kind of like, oh, this feels weird, doesn't it? I remember when Tara and I bought a table just a few years ago, we were at Nebraska Furniture Mart in Omaha and we were looking at tables. They didn't sell tables. This is a huge store. They didn't sell tables that weren't already distressed, had little pings in them. Like we just saw one or two that, that didn't have brokenness in them. And I thought, this is crazy. I didn't come here to buy a broken table. I'll just go to a garage sale if I want a broken table. But this is what they do. I've come to terms with this in our culture. It's not just a trend with our design, interior design. But this is a good, this is a good representation of the gospel. You see, lately, Tara and I, we've been working on a project at home where I've taken this old wooden window, and it's got four panes in it. And this thing was just jacked up. It is broken. It would not be used in a house. You would want to throw this away. It is the epitome of uh, something that is not good enough anymore. It has no real use. And we're going to put pictures on this window. And I've worked with this thing, and I've, I've painted it and made it look as good as I can, but it's just an old, nasty-looking wooden window. I could have chose to throw that window away, and the world would look at that and say, it makes sense. People do it all the time. What are you going to do with it? But when we put a beautiful picture in it, there's something it just looks good. You see, that beautiful picture gives value to that old, worn-out wooden window. It makes it look not so broken anymore. That's what God does with us. Your brokenness, the devil will look at you and say, you need to feel horrible about yourself. You need, you need to sit in your self-pity and let me beat you down and tell you you can't serve God. You, do, you can't love God. God can't accept you. God hates you. And God's saying, listen, I know <laughs> your brokenness. I see it. And you can either discard yourself or you can realize you are a broken canvas that is going to be made beautiful when I paint a picture of grace on your life. When you see your brokenness as not something to be discarded, but a canvas for God's grace, you will see the beauty of the gospel more so than ever in your life. You don't have to feel so much shame over your junk. You just need to be able to present it to the cross. By itself, it should be discarded. But God gets glory when he puts the beautiful picture of grace on the broken canvas of your life. I'm not telling you that sin isn't sin. No, sin is sin. It's bad. 
I'm just telling you, this is about God getting glory. And if you submit your brokenness to him, he smiles. He's got a plan. And redemption looks good. Last but not least. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be you. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me. Truly, by morning, there had not been left to Nabal as much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal and said, And behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. This is the epitome of an unbeliever's life, just celebrating their, ama- their own amazingness. And here's what God's going to do to every single one of us. So she told him nothing until the morning light. And in the morning when the wine had gone, he realized his wife told him these things and his heart died within him. When you realize God's grace in context to God's judgment, you'll be like Nabal. And he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash your feet, the feet of your servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted, and, and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. And Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Gilim. All right, last thing we see is God celebrates when we receive his grace. God celebrates when we receive his grace. Let's address that whole polygamy issue at the end, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff in the Bible, especially when you look at these kings, where it ain't good, and it's not an example for us to follow. You've got Saul, who took David's wife, Michael, and gave him to some other dude. You got David taking two, three wives for himself. This is not good. And just because it's obviously part of the story, just like many narratives in Scripture, it is not obviously something God is blessing or condoning, but it is a part of their culture, and it is not good. It is sin. So don't convince yourself otherwise. David celebrates two things. Number one, he celebrates that Abigail didn't have to be destroyed. And number two, that Nabal paid for his own sin. God doesn't want people to go to hell. God's not in the business of sending people to hell. But God will let you experience the judgment on your own life if you don't bow a knee to him. And God's heart is that when he sees you receive his mercy and his grace, he rejoices and celebrates. It says in Luke 15, it says in Revelation that one sinner repenting 
makes the angels in heaven rejoice. Listen. Are you worn out tonight? Are you worn out in general? Are you worn out in trying to live up to the commands of Christ? I believe that one of the primary messages Jesus would give us if he was standing here face to face, if he's talking to believers, he would say, go back to your first love. Go back and approach me like you did the first day you came to me. Experience my grace fresh, just like dew refreshing the grass every morning. Experience my love for you long before you ever served me. Experience my favor on you long before you could do anything for me. Seek me. Enjoy rest in me and what I've done for you. This is the heart of what's going to fill you up spiritually in Christ. This is called abiding in Jesus. Remembering these truths. We can make the faith so complicated. We can heap more burdens on Christians than the Pharisees did on the Jews. Say, you got to do this, 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 this. We don't do anything without first realizing God loves us. And he initiated this love. Rest in that this week. Experience his grace. And you will be filled. And it'll be amazing. Let's pray.